starting our study of systematic theology. Uh, we're going to be going through this the next 13 or so weeks. Uh, you can see kind of the, the weeks there on your handout, uh, what we'll be looking at. Today we're just going to kind of be introducing systematic theology. I know some of you guys are like theology nerds like Terry and guys like that have probably read all the textbooks and you've maybe taken courses. Uh, some of you have never looked at it at all, have never really gone through a, a theology course. And so this is going to be good for us as a church. This is going to be good for us really to go through this, uh, to look at it, to talk about it. And really, I just want to begin with talking a little bit about why we are doing this. So we're going to be doing this, and then Jared is going to be going through God's big picture. So he's going to be uh, kind of taking a big overview of the scriptures through the Bible, and he's going to walk us through that this summer, which is a lot different from what we normally do. Normally, we would be going through books of the Bible and studying it uh, verse by verse, line by line, and uh, doing that. But we're kind of taking a big picture look this summer. So I think this is an exciting thing for us as a church, an exciting thing for us as individuals. So why are we doing this? Um, God has given us this command, really, to prepare our minds. He's asked us to meditate on his word, to meditate on his ways. He's given this, us this ability to think and to think logically as humans. It doesn't always seem like we do that. Uh, if you look at the world around us, we don't see a lot of logical thinking all the time. Uh, in my life, I don't always do that, but he's given us an ability to do that. And so we need to do that when we look at his word, when we look at the way he's revealed himself to us. So we need to do it for ourselves to deepen our knowledge, but also for the world around us. We live in a, a, a world of lost people, and we need to be able to artic articulate who God is to them. So that's another reason why we're doing this. So I just want to start with a verse from 1 Peter. It's in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, and it says this. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So all of us in here have a hope. Uh, those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, we have a hope in Christ, and we need to be able to tell others about that. And so studying theology systematically is one way we can prepare ourselves to do that. So let's just pray before we get started. Father, I just want to thank you for uh, gathering us here together this morning. I thank you for this group of people. I thank you that we can gather together freely and study your word. We pray for those across the world who cannot do that, who cannot gather freely because of persecution, and we pray that you strengthen them, that you give them a way to do that, and that you be with them. Uh, God, we just thank you for your truth. We thank you that you've revealed yourself to us through your word. We thank you that we can study and know about you, and we just ask that you reveal your truths to us as we study your word and that you implant those truths deep into our hearts, deep into our souls. Just help us to glorify you in all that we do. Amen. So let's just start out with the definition of systematic theology. What is it? You know, in theology, you know, you kind of get around people who've maybe been to seminary or studied a lot of theology, and sometimes they throw out these big terms, and you're like, what are they talking about? What's eschatology and all these things? And we're going to get into all that. But sometimes I think we overcomplicate things. Theology is simply the study of God. Theos means God, and logos 
means word, which is a conveying of information, kind of a way of saying that. So when we say systematic theology, we really just mean the orderly arrangement of the study of God. So systematic theology seeks to arrange the whole of biblical teaching into logical, topical divisions. This allows us to form doctrines. It helps us to kind of construct an overall view of who God is. So that's what systematic theology is. Let's talk about what it's not. You know, when we think about theology, and Jared kind of helped me with this, when we, there's different, I guess, types of theology. There's different categories. And we can think about it all as building blocks. We think about these building blocks that build upon each other. So we would start out the baseline for all that we do is the canon of Scripture. It's the Bible. That's the baseline for all that we do. That's what we measure and judge everything against. So that is the, the base. That's the base building block. And then above that would maybe be hermeneutics, how we interpret Scripture. Above that would be biblical theology, where we look at specific areas of Scripture and maybe look at how a prayer uh, maybe would look in certain uh, aspects in the Old Testament, maybe how prayer was looked at in the New Testament, how that developed. And then above that would be systematic theology, which of course is biblical, but it's different from biblical theology in that it looks at the whole overview of what the Bible says. So if we were looking at prayer, we would say, what does all of Scripture say about prayer? And that's what we would be looking at when we're looking at systematic theology. That's what we're going to be studying. And then above that would maybe be like applied theology. So how do we uh, apply this to our lives? So the theology of marriage, the theology of work, um, things like that. The theology of uh, being a parent. So those are that's applied theology. So we have these building blocks. We have the canon of scripture. We have hermeneutics. We have biblical theology, systematic theology, and then applied theology. And then here on the side would probably be historical theology. And that's what we looked at last summer when we looked at church history, the way doctrines were developed and progressed throughout the church age. So we've already looked at that. We're not going to be getting into that too much this summer. So what are the advantages of studying theology systematically? And really there's five things I want us to look at. One is that we're able to see what the whole Bible teaches on a given topic. So when we look at creation, we're going to look at what the whole Bible teaches about creation. When we look at sin, we're able to look at what the whole Bible teaches about that. And then today we're going to be looking at Scripture. We're going to be looking at what Scripture teaches about itself, basically. And uh, so that's what we're going to be looking at today a little later on. Two, we're able to explore the logical relationships between the various Bible doctrines. So, for example, we're going to be talking about election. We're going to talk about regeneration. We're going to talk about conversion, justification, sanctification, glorification, all the vacations, all the big words. We're going to be talking about that individually, but we're also going to look at how all of those fit together uh, as a part of God's redemptive plan for man. So we're going to see how they interact and fit together. Third, uh, when we study... uh, systematic theology, we really are brought face-to-face with the fact that our knowledge for God is bounded by his own revelation. It's bounded in what he's given to us. And so we acknowledge that the Bible is our source of knowledge about God. Four, we're going to see that there's great harmony and consistency in these doctrines. We're going to see that scripture is unified. And that's one of the great things about studying things uh, overall is that we're going to be able to see that unity 
when we go through Scripture. And that's one of the amazing things about the Bible is it's unified. Uh, fifth is that we just have a tool for helping us transform our secular worldview into a biblical worldview. Systematic theology aims to change the way we think about God and the way we think about ourselves. So it's going to change our thinking, uh, but it also helps us produce creeds. It helps us produce statements of faith. It has a great power to build up the church and also encourage individuals as well. So uh, I just want to talk about a few of the dangers of studying theology. Um, Sometimes we... This is a theology textbook. This is Wayne Grudem, and this is actually recommended uh, as a part of this course. If you, you know, I've, I haven't read through this thing. It's really thick, but it's a good reference. You know, if it's got it's broken up into chapters, it's a good reference. So, and he has some smaller books as well. But one of the dangers is is some people can make the you know the study of theology. They can put this textbook above above this. And that's a real, real danger when we put this above Scripture. Because really the way it is, Scripture judges this. And so we have to be careful about that. Scripture is the ultimate authority, and we can't make these textbooks and these ways of thinking the ultimate. We can't make John Calvin Jesus Christ, okay? We have to be careful with that. Um, So that's one of the dangers. Another danger is taking Scripture out of context when we study this. We don't want to be taking Scripture out of context we don't want to say what we want to say, okay? Oftentimes we see people doing that. They can take Scripture out of context to make it say what they want to say. We want to say what God says. We want to look at what God is teaching us through Scripture. So we have to be careful about that when we study this. And we, that's why I say we test everything, everything I say, everything anybody up here says, we test it against this, okay? And then thirdly, One of the dangers is we don't want theology to become a big dividing force within the church. There are essential doctrines that we all have to agree on. We all have to agree on the divinity of Christ. We all have to agree on the Trinity, some things like that. But there's also non-essential doctrines, okay? And we can agree to disagree on those. One of those would be like end times theology, okay? So we want to point out as we go through, and we're going to try to do that, what's essential and what's non-essential, Okay, so I've already talked a little bit about why we're studying theology, but I just want to go over a few more points here. There's four things I want to mention here, and I think this is all in your outline, or maybe it's not. Let me see. But we're going to go through four points here under why we study theology. Point number one is we study it for, the, for God's glory. The ultimate purpose in all that we do is to glorify God, and, and God is glorified when we seek to know him. Philippians 1, 9 through 11 says this, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So the objective of uh, of studying theology is to come to know God better and increasingly learn how to please him. 1 John 2, 2, chapter 2, verse 3 says, We know that you have come to know him if we obey his commands. But we have to know what his commands are. So we study theology for God's glory. 
And then we also study theology, point number two, is to corporately reflect Christ to others. So we study theology so that the church can be an accurate reflection of God to the world. We want to accurately tell others about who God is uh, with our words and with our lives. And we have to know what God's commanded us to be and commanded us to do in order to do that. So the third reason we study theology is for individual growth and sanctification. So we want to study theology so that we can individually grow in our knowledge and therefore grow in our faith. Uh, This is a way in which God uh, sanctifies us. We don't want to just know about God as as if he is some far-off deity in the distance. We want to know God personally. We want to have a relationship with him. We want to humbly seek to know him. And really, if we think about this, if we really believe that God is who he says he is, if we really believe that he's the creator of all things, that he's the creator of heaven and earth, that he's revealed himself to us through his word, wouldn't we want to seek him? Wouldn't that be a a main uh, objective in our lives, to seek to know him better? So that's one reason why we're studying. So we study theology for God's glory, to corporately reflect Christ to others, for individual growth, and also we study theology because doctrine matters. John 8, 31, Jesus says, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. We have to know what those teachings are. We have to study that. We can't just make up what we think God is going to be like. If we make it up, we're going to make a human-like God, and we don't want that. We want God to be God. We can't shy away from the truth. You know, many churches today uh, in our country and in other countries really purposely avoid certain doctrines because they're difficult, because they're uh, controversial. And we don't want to do that as a church. Uh, we don't want to be a church that doesn't teach about God's wrath, about God, about hell. Some churches don't teach about sin because they don't want to offend people. They don't want people to be uh, feel bad, basically. And so basically what we get in some places are just life lessons, kind of ankle-deep theology, quick-fix type things. We don't want to do that here at Christ Community Church. We want to study... Uh, what the Bible says. You know, if the Bible talks about it, we need to know about it. All right, and that brings us to how we study theology. So when we're studying theology, we have to acknowledge that there's an ultimate source, and we've talked a little bit about that uh, this morning. But we have to admit that there's an ultimate source for God's revelation. In other words, there needs to be, as some people have put it, a final court of appeals, a plumb line, a baseline to judge the content that we're going to be looking at. Uh, J.I. Packer uh, wrote a book, and he talks about, uh, in this book, the three final appeals to the theological question that we see in our culture. Uh, One would be the evangelical position. That's a position that, that this church holds to most closely. The other would be the traditionalist position, and the third one would be the subjectivist position. And I think those are their on your handout. I'm just going to read what uh, Mr. Packer uh, has to say about this. So the evangelical position. The basic principle of this position is that the teaching of the written scripture is the word which God speaks to his church and is finally authoritative for faith and life. 
It is inerrant and inspired of God. It is complete and comprehensible. It contains all that the church needs to know in this world for its guidance in the way of salvation and service, and it contains the principles of its own interpretation within itself. Furthermore, this view recognizes that the Holy Spirit, who caused the Bible to be written, has been given to the church to cause believers to recognize it for the divine word that it is, and to enable them to interpret it rightly and understand its meaning. Thus, the proper ground for believing a thing is that God says it in his written word, and a readiness to take God's word and accept what he asserts in the Bible is thus fundamental to faith. So this is what we would identify with. The second position is a traditionalist position, and uh, it might be easy for you to think about this. This is probably more where the Roman Catholic Church falls, and this position says this. This position holds firmly that the final authority for faith and life is the official teaching of the institutional church. In other words, what the church says, God says. In this view, the Bible is neither complete nor comprehensible. It needs some help, some filling out, and is not self-interpreting. It must be supplemented by the teaching of the church to declare the Bible's true meaning, and its teaching is considered to be on par with, if not above, the Bible as an authority. So that's the second position. That's a traditionalist position. The third position would be the subjectivist position, and this is a position we see most often in our culture, in our secular culture, especially in the United States, but we also see this position beginning to creep into the church. So we have to be careful, we need to be aware of this, and we have to watch out for it. The subjectivist position says this. Uh, This is, uh, let's see, this position varies in form from, but essentially states that the final authority for faith and life is the verdict of one's own reason. Scripture, if consulted at all, is to be examined with an open mind and measured by knowledge from other philosophical, religious, scientific, and historical sources. Thus, the proper ground for believing a thing is not that the Bible or tradition contain it, but that reason and conscience commend it. So basically, whatever feels right to you, whatever you think is right, using your own conscience, using your own knowledge, would be the truth. There's really no ultimate truth with that position, and that's the position that's very popular in our culture today and and has begun to creep into the church, so we need to watch out for that. So all of this really brings us to our first topic in systematic theology, which is the doctrine of the Word, which is the doctrine of Scripture. And here we're going to see why Christ Community Church believes that the Bible alone is our ultimate authority when it comes to the Christian faith. I'm just going to say that again. The Bible alone is our ultimate authority when it comes to the Christian faith. So throughout this course, we're going to maintain two presuppositions. One is that the Bible is true and that it is, in fact, the only absolute standard of truth. And two is that the God who is spoken of in the Bible exists and that he is who the Bible says he is the creator of heaven and earth and all things in them. I'm just going to read that one more time, just in case you're taking notes, that the Bible is true and that it is, in fact, our only absolute standard of truth, and two, that the God who is spoken of in the Bible exists and that he is who the Bible says he is, the creator of heaven and earth and all things in them. So 
we're going to get into the doctrine of the word here, and we're really not going to be talking about the formation of the canon. We talked about that in church history. If you weren't here for that or you just want to brush up on that, I, I, st- I encourage you to study that because it is important to see how the canon of Scripture was formed. But really, we're going to be looking at more of what Scripture says about itself, uh, the testimony Scripture has for, te- for, for Scripture. Um, I just want to read a few excerpts from Psalm 119 here, which says this. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. So as we look through the Old Testament, as we study the Old Testament, we see that the faith of the ancient Israelites really was grounded in the authority of the written word. Uh, This really began uh, with the inscribing of the Ten Commandments, which were inscribed by God's own hand. But it really continues uh, throughout all of Moses' writings and also the writings of the prophets later on. These are always regarded as divine. They're not regarded as men's writings. They're regarded as God's writings. And we see this phrase uh, so often as, thus says the Lord. We see that hundreds of times in the Old Testament. I think the major way in which we see the Old Testament scriptures treated as absolute authority is the way in which Jesus treated them. He referred to them constantly in his ministry here on earth. He gave them the full weight of his authority. In John 10, Jesus says that scripture cannot be broken. And Jesus often says, it is written. And when he said, it is written, it was always seen as final authority. A really good example of this is when he was being tempted by the devil uh, in the desert, and he quoted Deuteronomy. You'll remember that he said over and over again, it is written, it is written, and uh, the devil acknowledged that as well. He acknowledged that as absolute authority. Uh, we also see Jesus' regard for Scripture in Mark 12. He kind of gets on to the Sadducees and uh, is giving them a hard time because they don't know the Scriptures. And so he's calling uh, for us to know the Scriptures. Um, further, Jesus himself abided in the scriptures. He was subject to the scriptures. We told that he lived a perfect life according to the Old Testament scriptures. He strived to uphold all scripture at all times. And we see in Luke 24 that even his death on the cross happened because, this is what he says in his own words, everything that was written about him in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms had to be fulfilled. So we see that Jesus ended a life of obedience to Scripture by dying in obedience to Scripture. So he was obedient to Scripture even unto death. So that's the Old Testament. Moving on to the New Testament, uh, we see in Matthew 28 and in other areas, Acts chapter 1, uh, in the Great Commission, that before Jesus ascended, after he, he rose from the dead, and before he ascended into heaven, he anointed the disciples to complete his teaching. Uh, In John chapter 14 through 16 and in other places, we see that Jesus promised to send his disciples the Holy Spirit. Uh, The Holy Spirit was to give them power. The Holy Spirit was to remind them of what he had taught them over the course of his ministry. The Holy Spirit was to lead them in truth. And it was uh, the Holy Spirit was also there uh, with them to reveal new truths to them. And those are the things that they recorded. 
another support for authority of the New Testament scriptures can be gleaned from the apostles' understanding of it, from their own understanding of it. They shared Jesus' view of the Old Testament as, as ultimate authority, and they understood themselves to be furthering that ultimate authority and that authoritative teaching. Paul commands uh, in his letter to the Colossians that, that it was to be passed on and to be read by others. We see this in Colossians chapter 4. Peter refers to this uh, and his other apostles as preaching. He, he refers to their preaching as inspired. He says, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. We see that in First uh, Peter chapter 1. Paul even says in his letter to the church in Corinth that if anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. So he's saying that what he is writing is the Lord's command, not his own. So we see that throughout Scripture, Scripture attests to its own authority. It proclaims to be authoritative. It proclaims to be from God. But there's also other reasons for believing it to be true and authoritative as well. Uh, One of the testimonies to its credibility is the unity of the gospel message throughout the Scripture. I mean, when we think about the Bible, we think about that it's 66 books written by many different authors, and these authors were from different walks of life, different cultures, different languages, even different continents, and that all of these things were written over thousands of years. Uh, All of that is put together, and the gospel message is still very clear, and it's unified. That's an amazing thing, and that's a, uh, a sign of its credibility. Another support for the credibility of scriptures is the uh, coming to fruition of the prophecies. Hundreds of prophecies have been fulfilled through Christ alone, and we see that through history. We see that through archaeology. Uh, we see that through science. Scripture never contradicts itself. It may express things in a different way from different viewpoints, but it never contradicts itself. And lastly, and I think most powerfully for us, We see the credibility of Scripture through changed lives. The Word of God has effectively and drastically changed the hearts of men and women throughout history. And I know many of you have experienced that here today, and you are still experiencing that uh, as you study Scripture. So let's talk about some of the attributes of Scripture. Uh, One of the first attributes we want to talk about is that Scripture is divinely inspired. Divine inspiration. In Second Timothy three sixteen, we read that all Scripture is God breathed. That means it's literally breathed out of God, inspired by God. The words we read in the Bible are God's words, not man's words. In Second Peter chapter one verse twenty one, says prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here we see that, that the prophecy of Scripture was not the prophet's own interpretation or ideas, but rather the will of God. This doesn't mean that God, like, obliterated their personality. He didn't, like, take over them. They weren't robots. But the end result of God's work in their lives, the Holy Spirit's supernatural activity in their lives, is a word-for-word, God-given revelation of truth. And that's why, uh, that's what they wrote down in their letters, in the epistles, in the psalms, 
That's what's written down. That's what we have in the Bible today. A God-given revelation of truth. So the Bible's not really a record of other people's experience with God. It's not some creatively inspired religious literature. It is the revelation of the saving truth from God himself. So divine inspiration is our first attribute. Our second attribute is biblical inerrancy. So the Bible is inerrant. The inerrancy of Scripture means that the Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. In other words, the Bible always tells the truth regarding everything that it talks about. Hebrews 6.18 says, It's impossible for God to lie. Proverbs 35 states, Every word of God proves true. So the Bible's inerrant. So the Bible's divinely inspired. The Bible's inerrant. And our third... uh, thing there is the Bible is infallible. We see that Scripture is infallible, which is closely related to inerrancy, but it's different. Infallibility denotes that the quality of Scripture is never deceiving or misleading. So infallible Scripture is wholly trustworthy and wholly reliable. Inerrant Scripture is wholly true. So if we're going to put these two things together, just an example here, if we're saying the Bible is inerrant when we look at the story of Jonah, we would say that Jonah was actually swallowed by a great fish and was inside that fish for three days. And if we were going to say that the Bible is infallible, we're saying that this event is reliable and profitable for us in faith, that it is meant for our good. We're saying that everything that is stated in Scripture is there for a purpose. God doesn't say anything unintentionally. Fourth attribute here is the clarity of Scripture. Scripture is clear and understandable. It's rational. The clarity of Scripture means that ordinary people, like you and me, are able to read and rightly understand the Bible. In Psalm 19.7, David writes, The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. So failure to understand the Bible is is saying it's not placed on the Scripture so much as it is placed on those who misunderstand and reject what is written. Fifth, we see that Scripture is necessary. The necessity of Scripture means that the Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel, for maintaining spiritual life, and knowing God's will. We have to say here, though, that it's not necessary for knowing that God exists or for knowing something about God's character or moral laws. In Romans, Paul talks about uh, these attributes can be seen from general revelation of nature itself or one's own conscience. He talks about that in Romans 1 and and Romans chapter 2. So sixth attribute here that we're going to look at is the sufficiency of Scripture. Finally, we see that Scripture is sufficient. The sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contains all the words of God that God intended his people to have at each stage of history and that it now contains all the words of God that we need for salvation and for obeying him perfectly. As Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we're going to go ahead and finish up here. Uh, just the kind of the conclusion here is we're going to be looking at the difference between experience, 
in Scripture, and I think it's important for us to look at the contrast there. And I'm just going to read what the author says about these things because I think he, he sums it up really well. To conclude then, though tradition and reason are important and that they help us in understanding what Scripture teaches, in the end they are both servants of the Word and not judges over it or peers beside it. Both tradition and reason are known to err. Scripture does not. To place tradition and man's reason as the grounds for determining whether something is the Word of God or not is as futile as trying to shine a flashlight at the sun. It places man's thoughts and ways over God's and seeks to usurp the authority God has established in his word, which is testified to and illuminated by the Spirit. Only the, only the Spirit can finally convince us of the right rule of God's word. The same Spirit that spoke through the mouths of the prophets also convinces us of God's exalted word. We cannot say that the Bible merely contains the word of God meaning that we are to attempt to discern by our reason and experience what that word is. No, as evangelicals, we must insist that the Bible in its united entirety is the word of God. The truth of Scripture is not malleable. It is not unique to each person. It is not determined by personal experience or personal opinion. Our experiences are only valuable to the extent that they are, that they are scriptural. We are to evaluate our experience by the truth of Scripture, not evaluate the truth of Scripture by our experiences. When God told Abraham that he was to have a child at his old age, reason would tell us that this was an absurd statement. How could Sarah, his wife, conceive at 90 years old? Yet Abraham believed God's words, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He knew God's words would prove true, even over and against human reason. And that's all I have. Are there any questions, comments, 